My name is Justin, if you don't know, and I work here, uh, though I haven't been working here much lately, all right? And that's because six weeks ago, I had knee surgery, and uh, so I haven't really been able to walk or anything until pretty much today. And so um, I thought, enough with this, I'm walking, and, and it was a miracle. I, uh, I walked, and so um, it's, it's very good to be here with you. Um, a month ago, it's been kind of a crazy six weeks, a month ago, my wife had a baby, and uh, it was our second kid, our first son, his name's Cole, and, uh, and, and he's, uh, he's doing all right, you know? Um, he's, he's growing up, my daughter, my three-year-old daughter likes him a lot. She likes to push on him, um, which toughens him up a little bit, because my wife's kind of babying him right now, and... Uh, <laughs> And so I like that, that she's, she's kind of toughening him up. She likes to try to press on his eyes, which is uh, not doctor recommended. So, uh, so, you know, everything's good. My, uh, like Ricardo said, my uh, brother and sister-in-law, they had a baby this morning. And uh, he was the exact same length as Cole and one ounce lighter than Cole. And I just went and saw him in between services, and they look almost identical. It's... it's uh, uh, they were twins, separated at conception, and uh, that, you know what, I got to give my wife credit for that joke. She said that one, and that, I thought that was pretty good. Um, and so, yeah, so, uh, so my son was an ounce uh, uh, heavier, bigger, and so I think that makes my wife uh, an ounce better, and uh, so that'll probably come up at uh, Thanksgiving or something. So... Uh, It is good to be back. Uh, If you need a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand. If you don't own a Bible, uh, this is yours. Please keep it. If you do own a Bible and you just forgot yours today, uh, that was dumb. Uh, Don't do that again. If If you own one and you knew we would provide one for you and so you intentionally left it at home, that's just work in the system and and, uh, Jesus knows that. All right? So just... uh, just keep that in mind. Ricardo mentioned First Wednesdays that's coming up on Wednesday, and, and I couldn't recommend this uh, higher. This is going to be really good. How many of you were at the first, first Wednesday? Probably not as many this service. Oh, that's pretty good. Um, it was packed out. It was, it was, uh, it was crazy. And so um, I'd love to do that again. This, this, uh, this week is, or this month is going to be really good. Tom's talking about uh, 9-11, reflections from 9-11. And that is like his ideal wheelhouse. That is what he is best at. In fact, I personally extended that invitation to him because it's going to be really good. So uh, I'd encourage you to be there for that and dinner, and, and it's just a good time uh, to hang out and connect with people. And if you're new, um, in fact, how many people, this is your first Sunday here. Just raise your hand. It's awkward, but it's cool. Good. Welcome. It's good to have you. Um, we're, we're very, very excited to have you. We, we have new people coming all the time, especially now with students coming back. Um, it's, it's kind of the time to be new, and it's the best chance to get to know people because there's going to be two or 300 people in the room, so you can kind of blend in and, and connect with people at your own speed. So uh, it's good. So I recommend you do that. Okay. Tonight, though, we're talking about stewardship, and uh, I thought, man, it's my first day back in six weeks. So let's talk about money right? Um, so I, I thought stewardship would be good, and I got four reasons why we're doing stewardship, and, and here's why I feel like I need four reasons. Um, in a typical systematic theology, which is what we're kind of mirroring in this doctrine series, in a typical systematic, the second to last chapter of the book is typically not uh, about stewardship, and so this is a little unique um, that, that we're doing stewardship at the end of a doctrine series, right? The doctrine of stewardship typically wouldn't find its way 
um, in, into, the, into the series. So um, there's a couple reasons. One, two reasons that aren't that good, and then two reasons that are pretty good. Um, one is it's in the book. So we, we don't want to skip chapters in the book. It's in the book. The, the authors thought it was valuable enough, so we'll do that. Number two is um, we're a church, so um, clearly we're about your money. Okay, and I know that um, a lot of you came into the church with the presupposition, ah, I don't like churches, they just want my money. And so, okay, um, we just want to live up to your expectations and make you feel comfortable, so <laughs> welcome and, uh, and give us your money, all right? So um, number three, and these start to get better, uh, number three is 25% of Jesus' words in the Gospels had to do with stewardship. Okay, so one out of every four things that Jesus said um, had to do with this idea of stewardship. So stewardship in its broadest sense is how do we take care of the things that God's given us? So everything from certainly our money, but to our, the time that we have. We all are given 24 hours a day, seven days in a week. How do we manage that time, the talent that we have, all of the resources, everything that we've been handed, what do we do with that? How, how do we leverage that and to what end? That's stewardship. And, and one out of every four things coming out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospels had to do with stewardship. So if it's important to Jesus, it ought to be important to Jesus' followers, right? That makes sense. Um, but maybe the most important reason that we're doing this, the fourth one, is stewardship is kind of the ultimate so what to 11 weeks of, of theology, 11 weeks of doctrine. So one of the things we've said throughout the series is we don't want to just download a bunch of information about these different theological concepts and kind of send you on your merry way. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's probably suited for a different setting. What we've wanted to do is to say, here's some resources. So we produced a study guide. We've made the books available for cheap. What we want to do is say, let's spend 10 or 15 minutes getting you as much information about this doctrine as you need, but then let's spend the other 30 minutes really on what does this mean? How does this apply? Why is this useful for me? And so um, really, when we think about the, the broad scope of this series, we're going, listen, if you believe in Trinity, if we believe in uh, the fall, creation, God's revelation through Scripture, incarnation, cross, resurrection, worship, covenant, all of these things that we've studied, there, there's kind of a grand or ultimate so what to, okay, we've amassed this knowledge. Now, what, what do we do with that? And so there's only one more topic to cover, and we'll do that next week. Um, but, but this week is kind of a big so what to go, all right, let's say we believe all this stuff. What does it mean? Right? And so the, the so what is stewardship and how do you govern your life? How do you steward your life and, and to what end? Okay, So to do that, we're going to look at uh, two passages in Ecclesiastes and one in Matthew. So turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And if you're new to this stuff, kind of go to the middle and you'll find either Psalms, Proverbs, or Ecclesiastes. They go in that order. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2. While you're turning there, um, one of the verses that the authors use in the book was, was a verse that I've probably read a hundred times. I don't know, I'm a pastor, so a thousand times. I've probably memorized it. Um, but John 17 is a, is a prayer. It's the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. It's, it's um, done at the end of his life, and it's the entire chapter uh, 17. But in verse 4, Jesus says something in this prayer that in light of stewardship, I, th I think is, is kind of remarkable. Jesus, praying to God, says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
which is pretty, pretty incredible statement that after 33 years of life, Jesus is able to look the father in the face and go, I've done everything you've asked me to do. This, this is the ultimate picture of biblical stewardship. Jesus has stewarded 33 years of life to so well, so perfectly, that he can look at God the Father and go, I've finished. I'm done. I did it all. I mean, there may be no better feeling, and it's got to be in the top 10 human experiences, to get to the end of a work day and look at your to-do list and go, I, I did it. I did all of it. There's three things. It took me 10 hours, but it's done, right? Like, that, that's a, just a, a satisfying feeling. It makes me happy. I, I hear birds chirping, and I go home, and I swing my wife around, and I, I just feel good about that day, let alone Jesus now getting to the end of his life and being able to look at the Father and go, everything you've got for me, I did. And, the, and this is moments before the cross, so that's signed, sealed, and delivered. And, and he's just going, I, I've done it all. I'm 32, and so next year I'll be 33. I'll be Jesus' age. And, and I, and I, and I kind of think about how, how that would be to be able to look, at, look back on 33 years of life and just go, yeah, I, I did it. So this is perfect biblical stewardship, something that, um, unfortunately, we, we will never experience. Okay? Uh, here's our working definition of stewardship. Stewardship is the way that we govern our lives the ends that we are striving for, and the process we take to get there. Okay? Stewardship. The way that we govern our lives, the ends that we are striving for, and the process we take to get there. So, one of my presuppositions for this is that everybody is doing stewardship. No matter who you are, where you're at, how old you are, how young you are, what you believe, you could be a staunch atheist and angry at every word out of my mouth. You are a steward, um, whether you like it or not, whether you use that language. You have been given opportunities. You've been given life. You've been given breath. You've been given abilities. You've been given arms. You steward those arms. Um, some of you steward well. Some of you steward poorly. Some of you steward to this end, and some of you steward to that end. But everybody stewards. Everybody is doing stewardship ship, okay? And even when I say you're stewarding badly, which is, uh, I'm going to break this down into kind of four categories. The first category is people who are stewarding badly. And by that, I don't even mean that you're governing your life towards some bad end, right? We'll talk about that as the second or third different option here. The first end and the way I think, unfortunately, a lot of us are stewarding our lives poorly is that we have no idea where we're going and we are making a whole bunch of disconnected decisions that, that don't keep anything future in mind. Everything, every decision we make, every moment of our day is, is focused on what is right in front of me, what, what is most immediate, and what I want right now. And we don't think through long-term stuff at all. Right, like how, how many times have we thought through our lives and gone, this is what I want my life to look like five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. Some of you are going, well, I'm going to be dead in 30 years. Great. That's a goal, okay? That's something to shoot for, right? But, but just to take the, take the time to take a step back and go, well, what do I want my life to look like 10 years from now? How, how many of you are students? Raise your hand if you're a student. Okay. Some of you timid about your student you're all right. Okay, it's okay. Uh, if you don't have, a, have an idea of what your life should look like five years from now, you're, you're 
process through school, you're going to waste a lot of time. You're going to change majors like 1,400 times, and, and you're going to be one of those eighth-year seniors uh, with, with, you know, three kids, and, and you're kind of hoping to make it to us be a sophomore. You know, it's just, there's, there's, no, there's no vision for, for where you're going or what you're doing. And, and, and I, my fear is that most of us are in this place. Most of us don't stand in front of the menu at McDonald's and go, okay, what, 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 this decision is going to play out into my future and it's going to impact my health and what do I do and how do I do it? Most of us don't stop to think that way. Right? I mean, if you're there, you're in trouble anyway because you're at McDonald's looking at that menu and so your life is detoured significantly already. <laughs> but, but most of us don't take the time to think through those things, Right? We just kind of take things as they go. Now, I blame, and you may laugh if you know me because I have a personal vendetta against Facebook, but I blame Facebook and social media for much of this because what this technology has done is made very small, insignificant, but immediate things um, into very important things, okay? And so um, we go an hour in class or in a meeting or sleeping, and we wake up and we go, oh my gosh, I got to look at Facebook. I got to know what everybody's doing. What, what's Jennifer been doing? I got to know what, what's, what's going on in Jennifer's life, right? And it's not like Jennifer's nine months pregnant or on her deathbed. It's just like Thursday. And you're going, oh, but what about Jennifer? It was Jennifer, right? And so we stay in front of the screen and Facebook knows about all of our issues. And so instead of having to refresh now, it just automatically refreshes, which they're just drawing us in there, right? Um, but we, we go, oh, Jennifer, Jennifer, what's going on with Jennifer? Oh, she's having a sandwich. Oh, Jennifer. Oh, oh the sandwich wasn't good. Oh, Jennifer, right? Like, it, it, and, and, and things that are, that are totally meaningless and yet urgent become important. The, the, the ticker on the bottom of Sports Center does the same thing to us. We go, oh, I got to know. I got to know what's happening right now across the world. This has nothing to do with me. I got to know. I got to know. I got to know. And it's totally disconnected. It has everything to do with right now, immediate. And there's no moment where we just sit back and go, I wonder what the future holds. I wonder, I wonder where I'm going to be in five years based on, on this trajectory and, and these questions, right? I mean, it's kind of a big question to go, where is your life going to be in five years? Let's just, let's just pick one. Like, um, what, what, do you, what do you want your body to look like? Where, where do you want your health to be five years from now? If I were to ask you that question, where, where do you want your health to be five years? You'd kind of unroll an Abercrombie poster and go, yeah, something like this. <laughs> I go, okay. Well, that's a little skinny, but all right. Um, okay, so, so that's this trajectory. And in order to reach that end, th there's a lot of things in the middle. There, there's a lot of salad eating, which is terrible. Um, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of working out. There's a lot of running. There's, a lot of, there's not very many burgers. There's not many, right? And so our, we've kind of stated this trajectory, and yet our actual trajectory is far more in a kind of a Homer Simpson direction, and, and, and we're... So we make decisions that are actually leading us down that path. So we're sitting in front of the menu and we go, oh, fries? They have fries and it comes with garlic and, and mayonnaise to dip it in? Great, I'll take two, right? You know, and so that leads in this trajectory where what we have stated that we desire is in this direction. But what we are making decisions based on is what is immediately right in front of us. That's so what we don't think. And as a result, we have nothing of value to offer the people around us. Because things of value, I mean, just, you just look throughout history, 
Things of value don't happen overnight. They happen slow. They happen with intentionality. For this message, I, I spent a ton of time reading kind of like um, little biographies of work habits of famous accomplished people, everything from athletes to authors, and every one of them, everyone who has sustained elite success makes serious sacrifices to get where they want to go. They know where that is. They know what it's going to take to get there, and they have the self-discipline to do it. Every one of them wakes up early, gets to work early, works long hours, is very disciplined, schedules out when they're going to eat and when they're going to drink and when they're going to do, I mean, it's very, it's hard. My fear is that for most of us who just kind of make haphazard decisions, we aren't actually stewarding towards any, any desired end. And so we find ourselves in a place five years down the road and we go, how did we get here? How did, how, did I, how did I get fat? How did I get poor? How did I get, how did I get to this place? And we have no idea because we don't actually take time to stop and think about the future and go, okay, where, where do I want to be spiritually in five years? Where do I want to be physically? Where do I want to be professionally? Where do I want to be? Or, or maybe even asking the question, where does God want me to be? We'll get there. So that's number one. Those of us who are stewarding towards nothing. Number two, some of us are stewarding very intentionally towards experiencing comfort now, right? Some of, some of us do a fantastic job of, of making it very important and intentional decisions with your end being as much comfort and satisfaction, luxury, stability, and safety immediately as you possibly can have. Right? You've just kind of bought into the, I want it now, I want it my way, and I want this comfort, and I don't even care about the future. Right? I'm going to spend money on this now. I don't care about my credit five years from now. I'm going to have this relationship now. I don't care about my heart five years from now. I'm going to eat this thing now. I don't care about my body five years from now. I'm going to spend my time in this way now. I don't care about my spiritual life five years from now. Solomon um, did this very thing in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It says in verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. So this is what he did. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So stop there. Here's what Solomon said. He said, I hear what everybody says will bring me pleasure, and I'm going to test that theory. So I'm going to take everything that you say. You're telling me concubines are going to bring me pleasure? Fantastic. Bring it on. You're telling me big houses and palaces are going to bring me pleasure? Great. I'll take three. Oh, I need fruit trees and pools in them? Awesome. Bring it on. I need slaves. You think slaves are going to make me happy? Okay. Let's try slaves. Every single thing that the, that the people around him, the culture around him said, this will bring you pleasure, he said, I'm all in. 
This would be the equivalent of us watching a, an hour's worth of commercials and buying everything that's being sold to us. And, and just going, listen, I'm going to believe the message of all of these commercials. I'm going to believe the hype. I'm going to buy all the products and believe that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. And, and you realize that all, all commercials are the same. Right? They all follow the same basic script. If you're in advertising, I'm sorry, just plug your ears because I'm going to hurt your feelings. But all advertising is exactly the same. It's, it, it follows a basic formula. It's nuanced for different demographics. But here's the basic formula of advertising. Your life sucks in some significant way. You're a loser. You won't be a loser if you buy our product and use it. And then this is what your life could look like if you use our product. That's advertising. Okay? So it's, it's nuanced for different demographics. For young men, they go, you're a loser and no women like you. If you drink our watered-down beer, women will appear everywhere and want you. <laughs> okay, for, for, for young moms. Moms are very fragile sometimes. And, and, and so these commercials show them um, being a bad mom in some way, right? And it always starts out in black and white for some reason. And, and she's kind of hunched over and has fangs. It's just weird. They, they, it always starts really, really bad. And, and they... They give you, you're a bad mom because there's probably, it's for a cleaner, right? So there's probably raw chicken on your countertops and your kids are licking it. So you're, you're a bad, bad mom, right? But if you use our spray bottle and not the leading brand, ta-da, it's in color. You're a good mom. Your kids are smiling. They don't have mad cow disease, right? Like the, you're, the, you're bad mom, our product, you're a good mom. For older men, um, they, they use the car to, to woo them into feeling significant. So they go, oh, you're a loser. But if you buy our car, you'll be a winner, and all of the roads in Arizona will be wavy, <laughs> and, and there will be trees. And so um, somehow the Lexus comes with a move to the Pacific Northwest, but I don't understand how that works. You're a loser. Your life is boring. You buy our car, and you'll drive like an awesome guy, and you'll all of a sudden be on the Audubon, right? That's the message. You're a loser. Here's our product. You're not a loser anymore. That's what Solomon buys into. He goes, okay. If that's true, bring it on. I don't want to be a loser, and I'll try everything you tell me to do. Here's how it goes. Verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And this word vanity, um, Solomon uses over and over and over in, in this book of Ecclesiastes. And it's, a, it's an interesting word. Different translations translate it differently. The idea behind it is that it's something that's there for only a moment and then gone. Right? And so um, there are places in this world, these magical lands, where it's cold for half the year. And, and, and you don't sweat at midnight. And, and when you breathe out in these cold lands... Um, you can see your breath for just a moment. I know, it sounds crazy. You can see your breath, and then it goes away. For just a minute, just a second, really. You can see the, the work of your lungs in your breath, and then, and then it's gone. And Solomon goes, here's the deal. I bought the hype. I went for it. 
I didn't, I didn't withhold any pleasure from my eyes. If I saw something that looked cool, I went for it. And it was vanity. It was there for a minute, and it was kind of cool. I'm like, wow, that's my breath. That's cool. And then it was gone, and I needed more. I had to do it again. The, the comfort was gone. The pleasure was gone. It was there for a second, but then it was gone. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's what many of you are experiencing. You are stewarding your life towards comfort now. Throwing caution to the wind on your future and just going, I I want now. I want it to feel good now. I want to experience happiness and satisfaction now. And what you're experiencing over and over and over is the things that you're investing in are cool for a minute and then they go away. They're fun for a moment and then there's some pain. There's just implications for what we do. Okay. The third thing that I see of how we steward is the exact opposite. Same desire, same desire for comfort and safety and satisfaction, stability, but it's putting it off into the future and sacrificing today. So it's the opposite. So the second group was um, experiencing comfort today and sacrificing the future. This third group is sacrificing today and, and holding out for the future. This is investment. This is long-term investing. This is Warren Buffett. This is Dave Ramsey. Great ideas, um, but Dave Ramsey's whole idea, and he's a finance guy, who, if you didn't know, his whole idea is live like nobody lives today so that you can live like nobody lives tomorrow, right? The idea is be really thrifty and pay down all your debt so that all of your money is freed up and you can retire early, and he'll usually tag a verse on and go, oh, or give it away, but it's mostly about in, investing for your future and, and luxury in the future and and, uh, and re- being able to retire and, and visions of RVs are dancing through our heads and, and traveling around the world and yachts and, and holding grandchildren and all those kinds of things. And yet, it's, at, at the end of the day, it's the same desire. It's a desire for comfort, safety, and security. We want our future to be secure and stable and comfortable. And so we're willing to sacrifice some on the front end for, for that long-term gain. And Solomon speaks to this briefly in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Solomon goes, listen, when you get, when you approach getting the more that you long for, all you want is more than that. More is a God that is never satisfied. More is a, is a bottomless pit of desire. He goes, this is, this is what it is. You, you, you save up and you, and you scrimp and you hope for the future that you'll be comfortable and you have this luxury and you have these comforts and you have this safety and stability and you go, oh, but if I saved this much more, if I sacrificed this, then I could have that. And everything gets, it just gets to be more and more and more. And Solomon just goes, there's no end to more. There's just no end. There's always something else you could get. There's always something else you could long for. And with, when that desire is, is fundamentally the thing that's, that's pushing us forward, that's drawing us in, there's just no end to that. And Solomon knows because he went further down that road than anybody. And he just said, it's a road that doesn't lead anywhere. 
And I, and I can guarantee you this. It was none of these three ideas of stewardship that led Jesus to John 17, 4, where he was able to look God in the face and go, I've accomplished everything you've given me. Because I'll just tell you straight out, God has very little value for safety, comfort, and security. These are not the greatest ends that God desires for your life. And, and somehow we're able to wrap verses around, well, you know, I need to, need to take care of my family and, and, and keep them safe and comfortable and, and, and st- a stable environment and all that. And we kind of wrap some Bible around that to, to kind of insulate our family from actually uh, addressing kingdom of God issues to go, well, yeah, I mean, you don't want to put your kids in unnecessary risk, you know. It's not get an alligator for a pet or something. That seems foolish, but but maybe safety and security and comfort aren't, aren't anywhere near the top of God's uh, values for our lives. And maybe pursuing a life with God, uh, pursuing a life that's, that's more substantial and more ultimate than, than what these first three stewarding lives might look like, maybe it's challenging, right? I mean, uh, I think that no matter where you're at spiritually, there are very few people who would um, admit to wanting a shallow life. Right? I, I, think, I think very few, very few people will go, you know what, my desire for my life is just to be as shallow as possible, to not think too deeply. I don't want to think too profoundly. I don't want to consider the, the important things of the universe. I, I want to keep things really simple and really shallow. And I don't really want to have much to offer the people around me. I mean, um, I just want to be comfortable and, and I don't want to think about anything. I, I, think, I think a lot of us are there functionally, but I don't think too many of us would want to admit that. I think just about everybody would, would have at some level a desire to experience something more, something more ultimate, something greater, grander than ourselves. My fear for us is that when we pursue comfort now or comfort later as our most ultimate end, we design a shallow life for ourselves. We have nothing significant to offer the people around us. We have nothing significant to offer the world. We, have, we don't experience anything transcendent because we're content with what's, what's now and what's tangible and what's immediate. And, and now and tangible and immediate never result in great. All of the great works of our culture took time to develop, take time to master, take sacrifice. These certainly were not the ways that that led Jesus to John 17, 4. The way was in Matthew chapter 6. So let's turn there. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. comes right after Malachi and right before Mark. Lots of M's. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. We catch Jesus right in the middle of his longest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's the most substantial piece of theology that Jesus um, lays out for us, and he addresses this idea of stewardship um, in verses 19 through 34. So he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Jesus leads kind of pragmatic, going, hey, um, this world is passing away. The things in it decay, we're all experiencing that. The things in it get stolen, get broken. This world was never meant to invest. I mean, there's, there's a theologi- implicit theology in this in that Jesus is going, I, I created this world. I, I invented it. I invented all of the laws of physics that govern it. And I'm just telling you, this world was never meant to be what is most ultimate for you. It's not that good. It's only going to be around for a while or you are only going to be on it for a while. The, the world and everything that it has to offer and all the experiences and, and little comforts and little luxuries were never meant to be the ultimate end of your existence. I, I just didn't design it that way. It, this, this world is something of a kind of a staging place for, for what is eternal and for what is transcendent and what is most ultimate. So he just goes, don't, don't invest your life in the things that are today and earthly and, and immediate They were never intended to be invested in as the most ultimate thing. Heaven was. The eternal things were. The kingdom of God was. And Jesus sums it up in what I think is one of the most challenging verses in the New Testament. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is hard. I think Jesus intended this to be a very simple diagnostic tool for our hearts. It's really hard to answer the question, where's your heart at on this? It's a hard question to answer. It's, it's, it's impossible to answer for someone else. Where's that person's heart in this thing? But it's really hard to even just answer for yourself. And so Jesus goes, here's, here's how you figure out where your heart's at. See where your treasure is. Where are you investing the things most important to you? the things most valuable to you. And the the most valuable things that we have been given to to govern and steward is our time and our money and our talent and our bodies and all all of the things that we kind of have control over. Jesus goes, well, check out where, where you're investing those things. So open up your, your, uh, your calendar, your day timer, whatever you use. Where do you spend your time? Where do you invest your free time? When you're not in school or you're not at work, where do you invest that? How do you spend it? Some of us say, well, I, I, want, I really desire to have a, a dynamic or a growing spiritual life. All right. That's a, I think that's a fantastic trajectory. Check your schedule. Is there something in your schedule that's going to get you there? We say we, we want to be a, a follower of Jesus, and, and we often like to say that, well, you know, we're not, we don't believe in a religion, we believe in a relationship, a relationship with Jesus. Great. Uh, when do you cultivate that relationship? What time of day is it? Do, do you have it on your calendar? If you're a calendar person, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a religious calendar person. Right? I, I um, had an assistant who was kind of managing my schedule for a little while, and, and she noticed that I had, um, I had go to bed every night at the same time on my calendar. And she's like, really? I'm like, I need to be in bed by 645. <laughs> um, I, if you look at my calendar every morning, 6 a.m. devotion, 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. Because I want to have a dynamic spiritual life. 
I want to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus. I want to follow Jesus as well as I possibly can. So my alarm is set for 545, and I'm doing devotions by 6, Monday through Friday. Jesus doesn't get up early on Saturdays. Okay? It's, it's scheduled into my life. And so I, I can look at that and go, listen, I, I, I can know at least where my heart is based on the fact that I've scheduled time to spend cultivating my spiritual life. I value it enough to make the necessary sacrifices to get up at 545, which means I have to go to bed by 11, which means I, I got to do all these things in order to be able to function and be able to, to actually pursue the goals that I said I have in, in mind. So check your calendar. What, what are you cultivating? What are you investing in? Where are you putting your treasure? Jesus says it's a reflection of your heart. Okay, once you've done that, open up your bank account. Where are you investing your money? How are you spending it? Can, can you point to dollars that you go, okay, those dollars are, are specifically invested in the kingdom of God. These, these dollars are specifically invested eternally. D does that mean giving to the church? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's a pretty clear Christian thing to do, right? We're not, I'm not even addressing that tonight. I'm talking more broadly, going, how are you investing that money? So when we look at our bank account, probably over a month, the, the biggest chunk of money that, that you're spending is on uh, your mortgage or, or on your rent, right? I mean, some of you may be that your car payment's bigger than your mortgage, which is crazy. Uh, but nonetheless, probably your, your biggest chunk is your mortgage or your rent. And, and here's the deal. There's probably no way to escape that, right? I mean, unless you just got a smoking deal on a cardboard box or something, um, that you, you're going to have rent, you're going to have a mortgage. That's just, that's just real life, okay? What, what I want to get at, and I, and I know I'm getting specific here, but I, but I want to be really practical with this. What, what I want to ask is, how did you arrive at the decision to invest that big chunk of money, that necessary chunk of money, on, on that place to live? Right? So let's say, let's say your average rent mortgage is, let's just say $1,000. Split the difference between rent and mortgage. Say $1,000. Probably all of us are going to have to invest that money in a place to live. My question... The question is, what questions did you ask to arrive at spending your $1,000 a month on that place? Was it questions like, where can we get the biggest house for the, most amount of, for the smallest amount of money that we can afford? How can I get the most square footage? How can I get um, the biggest garage so I can do the things I want to do? How do I, um, or what, what neighborhood is going to be the safest for my family? Um, what, what neighborhood could I move into that has the best schools for my kids? Okay, now, now something for the seven o'clock. <laughs> what apartment complex parties the best? What apartment complex is the closest to the school? What? Right? So there's a whole list of questions. These aren't bad questions, but I wonder if they are not um, an incomplete list of questions. I, I wonder if we even considered asking questions like, um, what neighborhood could I live in 
that would allow me to invest in the people? How could I live in a home that maybe is a little smaller, but it's closer to the church so I could be part of the community there? Statistics show that if you live more than 10 miles away from your church facility, um, that you're exponentially less likely to be involved secondarily um, at the church. So how, how could I, um, what neighborhood could I live in where there's maybe three or four other couples or families um, that we could start a community and, and, and really impact this neighborhood? What, what house, maybe, maybe, what if we picked this house because it's got a big living room where we could host a, a, a redemption community? What if, what if five of us moved into this apartment complex so that we could really impact this apartment complex? So I, I think what I want to accomplish this evening is two things. One is, um, create a moment for you to just take a step back on your own life and go, where, where is this thing headed? Where am I going? What, what trajectory am I really on? Where do I want to be? Where does God want me to be? And then where am I really? So just kind of create that moment. And then I hope create a moment where we can see the better vision to go, that seems like a life full of meaning. That seems like a life honoring to God. That seems like a life that would provide actual satisfaction for me. And that it would, it would produce in us a, a desire to actually go after that life, pursue that life. Jesus says, let's do some diagnostics first. Where's your heart? He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In other words, what are you looking at? What are you desiring? What are you longing for? That's a reflection of what's in your heart. It says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God, and the word here is translated money. The word is mammon, and it's broader than just dollars and cents. It's your resources. It's the same concept. It's your treasure. Jesus draws a pretty sharp distinction here, saying you, you can't fully serve God and fully serve money. In other words, you can't serve today and eternity at the same time. It's a different set of questions. It's a different set of values. Today asks you to spend. Eternity asks you to give. It's a totally different trajectory. Now, what, what's amazing to me is that Jesus is addressing something 2,000 years ago that we are still struggling with today. That is, that we're trying to get just enough Jesus and just enough comfort to kind of wiggle down this middle road. Let's, let's, let's follow Jesus, but let's keep comfort, safety, and stability as high values, but, but still want to follow Jesus. And so we're kind of weaving in and out where we go, oh, I love Jesus. Oh, he's asked me to do something risky. Well, I, we value safety and comfort and stability. These are, these are, I think, huge, huge values, huge idols for us. I wonder, as I, as I read through scriptures, I, I wonder how many of us would respond to the call of God that, that he lays on some of these people. I mean, asking them to risk their lives. Asking them to, to, to give up half of their money. 
Some give up all of their money. So we try to do both. We try to get enough Jesus to kind of inoculate us from hell, but, but keeping enough of the comfort and the safety and the security so that we don't run the risk of losing everything. The people that Jesus is talking to 2,000 years ago clearly were dealing with that same issue. And I think Jesus senses that in them, which is why he finishes 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. It's interesting that Jesus lands there, saying all, all these worries and all these concerns and this focus on now and the focus on comfort and the focus on safety and the focus on we've got to make sure we can eat, we've got to make sure we can drink, we've got to make sure we have clothes to wear. He goes, that's what people who, who, don't, who don't know that there's a God worry about. So when he says Gentiles, he's broadly referring to just people who, who think that it, when, when your days here are done, there is nothing more. The story ends here. They, they, they have an, a, a worldview, a story of the world that says, hey, listen, we're highly developed animals, and, and it's random, and it's just chance, and it's natural selection, and when you die, you die. It's heavily materialistic, naturalistic, and just going, there's, there's no better, there's no transcendent, there's no spiritual, it's just this. In which case, I would say, Please pursue comfort. Pursue the greatest ends of whatever you can get your hands on. Don't sacrifice for yourself or anyone else. Get what you can get because you're going to be dead soon. And you can't take any of it with you. So if there's nothing more, if, this, if what we can kind of taste and touch and feel and smell, if all of that is it, then man, Get what you can get and get a lot of it. But Jesus is telling a different story. We tell a different story. A story of the world that goes creation, fall, redemption, restoration. A story in which there is a sovereign God, a father God, whom Jesus says, listen, if you would seek the kingdom, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He goes, listen, short-term comfort doesn't promise you anything for the long term. It doesn't promise it's going to be with you. It doesn't promise it's going to support you. It doesn't promise it's going to provide for you. It promises immediate comfort, satisfaction now, and nothing more. Long-term comfort does not promise that it will walk with you through the process. And if we learn anything over the last five years with our economy, it's that the future is not secure. But Jesus goes, listen, 
if we believe this true story of the world, we're not believing in an it, a thing, we're believing in a who. A heavenly father who knows what you need. A heavenly father who loves you enough to walk you into eternity. A heavenly father who's not just standing at the, at the end line hoping that you make it there, but a heavenly father who will take you to the end line. That's the story of Jesus. And that's why Jesus can, in, in chapter 17 of, of John, verse four, say, I've accomplished everything. That's why he can confidently walk to the cross and give everything. I, I was at a church one time that was starting the stewardship campaign, and I thought, oh, this would be interesting. Here was the campaign. 1% in one hour. That was their campaign. That if you can give God 1% of your money and one hour of your time, that'd be awesome. 1% in one hour was the goal. That feels like a slap in the face to the one we, are, we say that we're following. Who gave everything. So here's the deal. I don't want to argue with you about should Christians give 10% or 5% or 15%. At that point, I think we've missed the point. Jesus, the one whom we are following, told us that if we invest our lives in heaven, if we seek first God's kingdom in everything, every moment of our day, every decision that we have, every dollar we spend, if we seek first the kingdom of God, everything else will be added to us. He laid it down saying, listen, you have to give everything to the kingdom of God. And then Jesus said, I know you're skeptical, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'll go first. I, I know this is true. I trust this is true. And I'm gonna demonstrate this is true by giving everything. One hour and 1% is a joke. It's a slap in the face. Jesus says, give everything, invest everything, seek first the kingdom of God, and I'll go first, so that you can be sure that what I'm telling you is true, and that when you invest, there is no ultimate risk because the Father holds you in his hands. Might there be sacrifice? Might there be suffering? Might there be death? Yeah. Yeah. But Jesus seems willing to sacrifice pieces of the 80 years we have here for an eternity in paradise. I want to end with a story that um, I haven't been able to get to all day, um, but it's the seven, and so I can just go on forever. Um, this comes from uh, a book by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. And uh, I want to just read this story and then, and then we'll go. It says, in April of 2000, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80 years old, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow a medical doctor pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over a cliff, 
and they were both killed instantly. I asked my congregation, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Even two decades after most of their American counterparts had retired to throw away their lives on trifles. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. These lives were not wasted and these lives were not lost. Jesus said in Mark chapter eight, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. There's something better to long for. There's something truer and greater than what we've been sold as the American dream. For, for us today, if you're 20 years old or 30 years old, or tomorrow when you're 60, 70, 80 years old, there's something better, there's something greater, there's something more meaningful. There's something better to which you can give your life. Steward towards that. Let's pray. Jesus, we're told that there are many great things that we can long for and invest in and hope for. We're told that they will give us um, the satisfaction that we long for, the happiness that we long for, the pleasure that we long for. But the reality is they, they will only scratch the surface of the kind of satisfaction we were designed to long for. And, and that's the great irony of this is, Lord, that you have put these desires for happiness and joy and satisfaction in us. They're your making. They're your invention. You came up with the idea to give us feelings and hopes and dreams and desires. But you did not give us shallow longings. You gave us deep, profound, difficult longings. Longings that that only you can satisfy. And so many of us go throughout our lives seeking to satisfy these longings on trifles, on, on vapors, all the while wishing and hoping and expecting the next trifle to bring that satisfaction. I pray that we would not be so fooled 
I pray that we would find no ultimate comfort in the clothes we wear, the people we know, the things that we have, the money in our accounts, that we would find just the right amount of satisfaction in them because they are good. They are good gifts. Our clothes are meant to bring us a level of joy, but I pray that we would not look to them for any more. Our money was meant to bring us a level of happiness and satisfaction, but no more. And I pray that we would depend on our money only as far as you have told us to. But for that ache that is deep down inside of us that we all know, believer or non-believer, we would look to you, the only one who can really satisfy that ache. So we love you. We aim to praise you and to seek after you each day of our lives. In your name we pray, amen.